0: Hey everyone, John and Andrew here.
1: Welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, quieting the mind through human connection. Despite technical difficulties.
0: This is Optical Course. Here we go. So Andrew, not like it's a competition at all, but this (laughs) was probably the most, quote, famous guest we've had on. In fact, he's been in our bucket list since the beginning.
1: Yeah, uh... You always like to have that, like famous rating. Oh, scale. I do. Like, <laughs> like fame, fame is it it's, makes makes us feel good about what we're doing. Maybe that's what it is. It's very egoic, and it gets the downloads up. How do you, How do you think that makes our guests feel who have no fame whatsoever?
0: Well, I think the other guests are famous now because they've, they've been on Obstacle Course. I'm
1: talking about Maeve. <laughs> yeah, Maeve <laughs> won't care, <laughs> and she understands. Um, but yeah,
0: you know, if if you care about things like that, which we don't. Um, Bob, Bob, definitely you could add that title to him, which is why it was just shocking to me that Andrew emailed him just out of the blue. So Bob, we met at, at this massive conference, um, where, where he spoke to thousands of people and Bob's been doing this for 30 years.
1: Cause he's famous.
0: He's famous. Yeah. And Andrew thought it would be a great idea to be like, you know what? Maybe Bob will have lunch for us. He's not doing anything else at a massive conference. And so he sent an email. So Andrew, why? Like what prompted you to send that email? Because that's, that's not you. You're not really into so, chasing fame, are you? You're not a groupie, are you? <laughs> no. Have you ever chased I've, a famous person? Have them? you? I have, actually. <laughs> that
1: doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> I have. Especially I, if they were on Dragon's no, Den.
0: No, I actually messaged Bo Burnham. Yeah. No,
1: I did. No, I believe you. I
0: probably... <laughs> I private messaged him after I watched his special on Netflix. Yeah. I was so inspired and I had had about three glasses of wine that I <laughs> sent him a private message on Facebook and just said, Bo, the work that you're doing is so important and you're so brilliant and this is what I think you should do after comedy. It's, it's kind of embarrassing now that I think about it. Mm-hmm. And the irony of it is he has a song that makes fun of people who do that to him. But, mm-hmm. but I was so inspired that I had sent him a message. I just checked it the other day. He still hasn't even read it. So he's he's a bit of a dickhead, is is (laughs) my point. (laughs) What if
1: he's listening right now?
0: Yeah, Bo, if you're listening, hit me up, man, and come on the podcast (laughs) because you're famous. And I love famous
1: people. (laughs) Do you think you get a little piece of that fame by talking to them?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think we'd be famous by default. Like, famous by, like, guilty by association, famous by association.
1: And what does that give you, John?
0: Uh, Identity and meaning in life, Andrew.
1: Does it? Doesn't don't you have your own identity why does your identity need to be tied up in uh i saw your eye twitch <laughs> <laughs> oh this is we're going deep yeah. uh you wanted to take this in a certain direction but i think we're going in a different one so this is good yeah why can't your identity being just uh being connected to the people who are already in your life
0: well since i've met you actually i feel like my identity's in- increased and you're not famous although you're starting to be your, yeah. co- your company is starting to be the company around town. I mean, I know you just had a big meeting today. So, I mean, you know, fame is one of those things. I mean, I'm I'm sort of overstating my case a little bit for comedic effect. I hope it's working. But <laughs> growing up, I really was kind of into this a lot. T- mm-hmm. Truth be told, I, I, I thought, boy, if I could just meet this, you know, athlete or actor, that would just oh, be a game changer. And I would love that. Not so much anymore besides Bo Burnham because he's amazing. But it, it is a real thing. and so I, I think it did surprise me when you said, "Hey man, I, I emailed this guy, and he's <laughs> asked him for lunch, and I was just like, "Wow, that's amazing."
1: Fame is one of those weird things because it's, it's not uh, uncommon that we have this obsession with fame. Like look at the royal family, oh, for sure, in, you know in England. Um, <laughs> That's where they are. Yeah. For those of you who don't follow this, they're in England. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the the obsession with people just strictly for being famous or the people right. who have become Instagram famous and, like the and Kardashians. YouTube famous. And yeah, yeah, famous just for the sake of being famous. Why do we care about that? I I don't really know. Yeah. And we don't have to get to the bottom of it. But it is... Yeah, important to point it out that you're one of those people yeah um, and i'm fine with it so uh <laughs> but i didn't email bob but, so. <laughs> but yeah i emailed bob just yeah, because it, he's inspired famous. by tim ferris um, oh um okay. that people really aren't that far most of the time maybe if they're like at the peak of their popularity and everyone's trying to get a piece of them so that it props up their thing that they're doing but the majority of people so he, he was speaking at a tony robbins event and you know, we're not going to talk too much about Tony no, Robbins Oh, he's, he's been in the bad <laughs> press lately. His current... Uh, we weren't even going to in, mention him. In infamy, fl- perhaps. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who knows? Right. Allegations. Yeah. No comment. No. We didn't ask Bob either. And I'm not going to email Tony. Nope. But I just thought I'd send Bob an email because we're going to this thing and there's a number of speakers and maybe one of them will want to sit down and have lunch with us and with, and chat
0: with andrew and john who are they?
1: they're not famous at all but we're friendly and we're a pretty good time for lunch <laughs> yeah no one wants to come sit at our table at whole foods so it's at, weird at it's, this point where was optical course in
0: conception was it even it was, in conception were we pregnant yet with the idea where am i going with we this? weren't
1: <laughs> we weren't pregnant uh <laughs> But we were probably trying. Uh, and, and it was <laughs> glorious. <laughs> yeah. And now you're all... all
0: <laughs> picturing
1: that. <bad. laughs> well, and, and you're witness to the results of our... Of our birth. Of, of all that trying. We're in trouble.
0: So so, anyways, Bob did answer the email. How, how fast did he get back to you, by the way?
1: Pretty pretty quick. Yeah. And He just said, yeah, I think I'm flying into Vancouver around 10 a.m. And if you guys are free around one, let's get together. And we sat and had a wonderful time for about two hours.
0: And when you told me that he got back to us, you were so chill about it. We just signed into our, uh, you know, what is that called? Uh, Airbnb. Yeah, Airbnb. Thank you. And uh, you're like, oh, hey, Bob, got back to me. Yeah, we're having lunch. You said Mm -hmm. it just like that. And I was like, What? (laughs) One of the speakers got back to us. We're having lunch with him. You're, He's you're like, famous. You're like, yeah, yeah, man. Maybe it's because you know this. I'm I'm like this. So you're just like, I got to keep it on the down low and keep it chill or else John's going to embarrass the podcast, which didn't quite exist at that point. No. But it worked out and I laud your brevity in the situation and it was a fantastic lunch. It was actually three hours.
1: Mm-hmm. Wasn't my brevity? Because isn't, isn't that like uh, a term of length?
0: brevity no i think
1: brevity is like courage or braveness yeah it's not is it not we'll fact check it yeah fact check it'll it be in the show notes
0: anyways your brevity was inspiring (laughs) (laughs) yeah and bob did practice the ted talk with us Mm -hmm. yeah he said i'm doing a ted talk can i practice it we kind of looked at each other and we're like well he's, he's not serious right but no he took off his watch and he did it
1: yep you'll hear bits and pieces of that ted talk in today's episode he's uh bob's a pretty incredible incredible guy and one of the reasons he's able to just spout off information and references (laughs) and and parts of some of the speeches he's delivered for the last 30 years in front of millions of audiences and he's able to just like pick them up and throw them out like he just wrote them in that moment it's incredible and probably because he is an expert in memory memory. (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah, he's a memory expert. So yeah, that, that does help. We it. have trouble remembering the podcast that we just recorded when we're doing the introductions. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> so We have something to learn from Bob, but he's a great guy and, and willing, as we've mentioned, to just sit down and have lunch with people. So, if in the future listeners you're going to a conference that Bob's at. You got a chance.
0: And you know what? Feel free to email that famous person. Ask them for lunch. You never know what they're going to say. Mm -hmm. Right? This is a chance. And you could have lunch with that person. That was one of my takeaways from this.
1: Or just go for lunch with with anybody and just connect with them. Don't have to be famous. Yeah. Don't have to be famous. (laughs) John. Stalker. (laughs) Enjoy the episode, everybody.
2: Woo!
0: So, we are here with Bob Cattell. It's a little ironic that we can't see you, Bob, considering one of your main things you talk about is the power of eye contact and looking people in the eye. And we were really wishing we could do that via video and Zoom, but that is not going to work for us today. So, we're just going to have to hear your melodious voice, which is very melodious. So, thank you, Bob, for being here. Um, I wanted to start with a question for you that I've had for about 10 months. Andrew, my pal here, sent you an email out of the blue when we heard that you were speaking at a conference we were attending, asking if you might join us for lunch. Now, we're not in the habit of sending such emails to such famous people like yourself. And I'm sure you're not in the habit of agreeing to immediately. <laughs> so, why did you agree? And is this a habit for you?
3: Actually, it is a habit. And I've been doing this for years. And there's two reasons why. One, when I was in college, my freshman year kicking on the football team didn't go so well. So, when I went home to Buffalo, I was at church and somebody said, How did kicking go? I said, Well, not so great. He said, Come on over here. And he introduced me to Marv Bateman, the Buffalo Bills All Pro kicker. And he had been an All American at the University of Utah. So, he, after a couple of minutes of talking, he said, Hey, would you have any objection to me picking you up uh, this week, taking you to Buffalo Bills Stadium? Let me see if I could straighten out your kicking. And I'm sitting there going, seriously? <laughs> so at the end of the week, he said, you tell your coach you work worked with me, you've gotten a lot better. And I sat there wondering, why would he do that? And I've had a number of people that asking nothing in return, I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for the kindness of others. So I just figure that's what life's all about. So there's a second part to that. You want to hear that one?
1: Yes, yeah, sure do.
3: So there's a book by Arbinger Institute called Leadership and Self-Deception. In the book, it talks about seeing people as people, not objectifying them. And we objectify people by seeing them as a vehicle, an obstacle, or simply of no relevance. A vehicle would be, I'm going to kiss up to this guy because he's going to get me a promotion. Or I'm going to crush someone else in my company because I want to get the promotion instead of them. Or simply of no relevance, the janitor. I don't even see him as a person. So I saw this in real life when a friend of mine said that her husband was a professor at a big university for many years and she was walking through this building and the janitor walked up to her and he said do you know that in 20 years your husband is the only one that knows my name knows my children's names has walked with me through my struggles for 20 years your husband is the only person on this campus that saw me as a person and not as a janitor
1: and so bob this is reshape the way that you lean into relationships or or accept uh requests for your time
3: yeah if the day's open i why everybody's a person of great importance of great worth there's you know somehow we got into the the idea that if somebody has a lot of money they're of great worth or if they've got fame they're of great worth or no everybody's of great worth
0: which is why you're willing to grab lunch with a landscaper and a bartender (laughs) <laughs> who did not have a lot of money
1: <laughs> and and didn't have a podcast yet and so we're about about a year later and yeah. we've uh we're just about to release episode number 20 here which for us is exciting and and, and uh yeah you were uh a, a big part of giving us some hope that uh that we could reel in some bigger fish than we had expected to right off the bat and and we we met for uh for a good two hours at a beautiful seaside restaurant in, in Vancouver, and uh, and we got to hear a sneak preview of your of your TED talk that you later performed. Uh, performed maybe isn't the the right word, but um, rehearsed. <laughs> yeah, and and so it was a, it was a great treat to to see you right before you went and and shared the stage with uh, Tony Robbins among others.
0: Yeah, it's not every day yep. but where somebody says, you're going to eat that last oyster, and also, um, can I practice my TED Talk on you? <laughs> <laughs> but, but you did. You never, you
3: never know. <laughs> you never
0: know, and you put down your watch, and you said, it's got to be 17 minutes, and you gave me the watch and said, time this, please, and then, boom, you went. And uh, we for, the, for those 17 minutes, I remember us just being, we felt like we were out of TED Talk. It was, it was amazing, and you're right on with 17 minutes. And you even asked us for feedback after. So not only did you have grab lunch with us, you asked us for feedback. Can you remember the critical feedback we gave Andrew? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. You
3: probably told me I was talking too fast.
0: <laughs> yeah, I remember you saying, was I talking too fast? And, and we were like, oh, it's fine. Maybe slow down a little bit. We were trying to give you feedback, but it was pretty good.
1: <laughs> so, so Bob, you've, um, you've been in, in the speaking spotlight for... Thirty years now you've undergone some personal transformations that we'll, we'll get into and we'll kind of start going back through time and, and touching on some of the obstacles but how would you describe Bob Cattell of today
3: oh of today it was actually interesting uh, someone asked me what was your favorite year of life and I said it would probably be this year
2: because
3: hmm. it's the first year where my mind is quiet it's calm I feel calm inside I realized that uh, we live in a world from the inside out, not outside in, and that, uh, you know, my daughter just asked me this question uh, a couple weeks ago. She said, Dad, what, what kind of an event would have to happen that would devastate you? Because you seem to be okay either way, regardless of what's going on. And I said, oh, you know, I'm not really sure. And what's really interesting is just a few days ago, my doctor calls me and says, pal, you've got a tumor in your bladder. It's probably cancer. And we're going to need to do surgery and determine how difficult it is. I said, oh, okay. And then I went about my day. And I was going, this is really interesting. When I was told in the past, because I had a melanoma about 12 years ago, and I mean, it rocked my world and devastated me. And, uh, and, you know, if somebody listens to some of my stories, one time I was told I had a year to live and that was it. And that devastated me. This time it was, uh, oh, okay. And my father fell down the stairs, um, which I just got back from his funeral two weeks ago, and he uh, passed away. And, you know, I went, okay, I remember when my mom died, it destroyed me. My father was like, just this feeling of gratitude, having had a dad that was so great for so many years. So, you know, I, I see these things happening on the outside that used to devastate me, but because I'm healed on the inside, they just seem to pass through, they don't they don't bounce off. They just like pass through like, okay, well, this is another day.
2: Hmm.
0: Wow. And, and that's, you know, I'm sure some of the listeners are thinking, I I don't know if I could ever get to that state of mind or that mindset, but this has been a long time in process. Uh, You, you, you weren't always um, this way. Um, I remember you telling a story back when you were a place kicker uh, missing um, not one, but two pretty important field goals in a game that uh, was quite devastating at the time. Could you maybe take us back to that story?
3: Oh, yeah, it's really fun because I use this when I'm speaking now. They'll introduce me and everybody claps and I realize uh, they don't really know who I am because I may have been on a lot of stages, but there's a lot of people that don't. Walk into the grocery store and say, Bob Cattell, and see if any heads turn. I doubt it. But anyway. (laughs) We'll give it a try. I walk on (laughs) this (laughs) So I walk on the stage and I go, hey, thank you for that applause. I had my first standing ovation when I was 19 years old. 19 years old, 70,000 people jumped to their feet and gave my performance a standing ovation. It was at Arizona State University, the big football stadium. They cheered for me because I was on the other football team and I just missed a field goal. (laughs) And because of those two missed field goals, um, I seem to just know I'm not going to get in again. The other guy, you know, he was from the area. He was on scholarship. I wasn't. And the coach just didn't want to give out another scholarship. That's just the way business is. And I never got another chance. So I thought it was the end of the world, but it wasn't. In fact, that reminds me of something else. I remember when this gal broke up with me in college, I thought it was the end of the world and it wasn't. I got that melanoma and I thought it was the end of the world and it wasn't. I had a marriage end and I thought it was the end of the world and it wasn't. It's so, uh, I think you know, resilience is simply getting back up after you get knocked down, and realizing everybody gets knocked down, and sometimes we need to take turns helping each other back up.
1: So, what I'm hearing you say is, it's not about not experiencing emotions when hit with things that could be deemed as negative, or I, obviously, it's not an ideal part of the day to to get a diagnosis from your doctor that could be cancerous, or or to to not be able to sp- spend any more time with your father, but. It's, it's just, would you say it's the way you process the emotion? Is it, uh, what, what exactly about that uh, experience has changed?
3: What's changed is, and, and I'm not really sure because I it gets to a certain place of processing in your brain, but Byron Katie wrote the book Loving What Is, and she was on Oprah. And Oprah said, I understand that all struggle ended for you in 1986. She goes, what does that look like? She goes, well, I'm open to it, but I haven't had a sadness or an anger since 1986. And Oprah goes, well, I want some of that. She goes, well, wait a second. Didn't your mother pass away last year? She goes, yeah. And I was when I walked into the hospital, you know, into that room, I expected to feel sadness and all I felt was an outpouring of love. So there's this uh, it's not like I'm reprocessing or trying to go, well, it's dad's probably in a good place or it's just the emotion doesn't hit. And I think it's because I took care of my childhood suppressed memories um, like that baby bird story I talk about. I always wanted to raise baby birds until mm-hmm. I healed the five year old who killed a baby bird and felt all the emotion that I had suppressed as a five year old. And after I sobbed for who knows, maybe four hours, it was uh, my daughter six years later goes, Dad, have you noticed for the first time in your entire life, you're not raising baby birds anymore?
1: Hmm. So would you say to people who deal with stress and repercussions of stress or or anger or anxiety for those sorts of people do you think it's a a matter of going back to the childhood and and figuring out where things started going wrong or or is there a, a simpler process or or how might how might listeners start uh really further understanding themselves
3: well, there is an article that I found by Jordan Gray that seems to do what my psychiatrist did after I spent forty thousand dollars with people who couldn't help me, and he basically says this. I think the article is "How to Get Rid of Your Suppressed Anger." Um, I could look it up, uh, but basically he says, "Scream," you know, find a place that you can scream and get that, that um, suppressed or, you know or repressed um, anger out. Or like go to a concert, scream at the concert to get it out. Um, he also talks about feeling your emotions. If you're angry, you know, go into your room and start pounding on the bed. And I have people go, oh, I'd never do that. And I go, well, I used to never do it either. And I got to keep the anger in me my whole life. Uh, I, I once broke every single club in my bag. Because if <laughs> I didn't hit the shot that I wanted to hit, I just was triggered and I was angry. Uh, and now I play golf. If I hit it in the water, I laugh. So one of the things I talk to um, students about, or actually anyone, I go, can anything make you mad? So let me ask you guys, can anything make you mad?
0: Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm.
3: Okay, so um, like a driver cuts you off, ah, you know that little feeling. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take a, a step backwards. The teddy bear. Did you ever have a teddy bear or a blanket that made you feel real good when you, This comes out of Clarity by J, uh, Jamie S- Smart. Uh, did you ever have a teddy bear or a blanket that made you feel really good when you were a kid?
0: I did. I had a little yellow blanket. It was adorable.
3: Okay, <laughs> and we all know that there's no magical properties that come out of little yellow blankets or hmm. little teddy bears. No. Nothing comes out of that bear. So where is the beautiful feeling coming from?
1: It's on the inside.
3: That's right. You already have it. It's already there, but you can't feel it because many times your mind is making too much noise. Hmm. So here's a question. What magical teddy bears or blankets are people chasing because they think there's something outside of them that's going to make them happy or peaceful inside?
0: Right. Yeah. Like what? Money. Oh, status, success, Money.
3: cars, relationships, uh, honors, acceptance, appreciation from others. Do we are we aware of people that seem to have gotten all of that and they're still miserable? Oh, definitely. And you know why? Because they're looking in the wrong direction. They think it's out there. It's already inside. And so my teacher taught me to look inside and reflect and quit blaming something outside of me for what's going on inside of me. Nobody makes me mad. They may trigger something that's inside of me, and I need to go heal that. And as I learned that, things started turning around. It's an example of the little little boy who says to his mother, Mommy, where are all the stupid idiot drivers today? They only come out when your father's driving. <laughs> yeah. So if you leave your house angry, you're going to see anger all around you. If you leave your house perfectly happy, the same things that angered you yesterday don't anger you today. So it's the inside out.
0: Yeah, Bob, I heard a quote one time and they said, if you see an asshole in the morning, you saw an asshole in the morning. If you see an asshole all day, you're the asshole.
3: Hmm. <laughs> I, the closest I heard to something like that was um, to be a and. You know impatient angry uh you know jerk when you're 18 years old is one thing to be that way when you're 80 is a tragedy
0: right yeah so so bob I, I'm, I'm curious about you talked about you, you listed four i'm sure there was many more than four sort of end of life type type feelings you had growing up or you felt like your life was over or your life was ended you talked about the diagnoses and the the girlfriend and missing the field goals I wonder if you can maybe share a little bit about what that practically looked like when you felt like life was over. How did you respond? Um, was it did you, did you did you take to any drink? Did you did you fall into a depression? Did you rage? Did you pull away? What, what did that look like? And then how did you get out of it?
3: Well, based on my uh, childhood, or based on my psychiatrist, he said I had childhood onset depression. So if things were going good, I was all right. If it wasn't going the way I wanted, I could sink into depression. And understanding that depression is linked to anxiety and panic. When you have anxiety, you have all these thoughts bouncing around in your head and your brain is overstimulated. And like a hair dryer, it needs to rest and protect itself. So if you saw your brain under an FMRI, it would be lit up like a Christmas tree when it's normal. And it looks like it's really, really dark when you're in depression. And so depression is this horrible feeling of uh, um, feeling like the, you're, you're in this cloak of blackness and darkness and it actually feels like hell. I started thinking anybody who talks about hell, I bet you they were depressed when they were talking about it because this is what it looks like. Mm-hmm. So um, I think the only thing I did was I, I just didn't give up. I, I got up and tried again, but my addiction was busy. From sun up to sundown, I could not stop. I had to be moving, doing. Um, in fact, uh, you probably remember part of the TEDx talk, uh, when I went to that teacher after my panic attacks went away and the anxiety didn't go away, he says, pal, let me tell you what I think is going on with you. You stay busy all day. I said, yeah. He said, Bob, busy is an addiction. Mm-hmm. He said, other people mask that with drinking or drugs. They're just doing that to cover the pain. You used busy. And it didn't work, did it? I go, no. He says, then I'll tell you what you did. You thought if I reframe it, I'll feel better. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, you learned how to take a negative thought and make it positive, to take unhappy and make it happy, to reframe with your thinking. But that didn't work, did it? I go, no. So said, I'll tell you what you did next. You thought if I serve enough people, I'll feel better. He goes, if you're serving people to feel better, you're going to burn out if you haven't already. If you do it because you feel inspired, that's great. But you've been doing it to run from the pain. Mm
2: -hmm. So
3: I'm still here because, and by the way, I don't know why I'm still here. I remember being in that place where people go, you have a choice to be happy. And I go, yeah. If you're standing at the top of the Twin Towers and your skin is burning off of your body and you're in massive pain, tell me you have a choice. Because when I was in that depression, um, for instance, this bladder cancer I found out about, Mm-hmm. This is nothing compared to being depressed. My shoulder surgery, the pain I went through, nothing. I, I'll take physical pain any day over emotional pain.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So, so it's just going mm-hmm. one more day.
1: Why Why would you say, and it's a complicated question obviously, but why would you think that we're in a culture where there is so much emotional pain and and depression and anxiety. Why, why do you think it's so prevalent?
3: Well, we could start with electronics. Uh, there was a psychologist that I listened to say, saying, with our brains being overstimulated by you know the smartphones and the electronics that are all around us, um, if you are prone to depression or um, anxiety, it'll accelerate you into that space. So in our schools right now, 25% of those kids are dealing with it. Uh, more severely than they would have. And, you know, I look at it a different way. What if if I was 18 years old and could have, you know, accelerated into this massive depression and anxiety back then and I got healed back then instead of when I was in my late 50s? I mean, that would have been a good thing, but I'm wondering if that's what it is. I mean, if you look at social media, there's so many things that are going on. People are getting angrier and angrier. And here's the, the rule of thumb. The person who's upset is always the one who has the problem. Could it be that that's true? So if you trigger me, if, if you're mad, um, I, I would look at you with compassion. Go, oh, anger is a secondary emotion covering pain, and he's in pain right now. Hmm. I'll wait till you're out of pain to have a discussion with you, because how many arguments can you win with somebody who's emotionally charged? Yeah. None. Yeah. None, because the blood has left the frontal lobe. And they're back in their you know, uh, monkey brain. And so the best thing to do is not do anything. Now, if I'm triggered and I'm angry, who's got the problem?
1: That, that'd be you.
3: You're right. So I, I love this one by Garrett Kramer. Garrett Kramer wrote the, bat, the book, A Path of No Resistance. He's a, a sports psychologist. And he was asked, what do you do to get the kicker ready to kick the winning field goal in the Super Bowl? He said, I don't get the kicker ready to kick the winning field goal in the Super Bowl. I get him ready to be OK either way because his worth has nothing to do with a ball going through the uprights if the fans are angry who's got the problem yeah the fans if the coach is mad who's got the problem
1: the coach i mean the the kicker might be out of a job but <laughs> but the coach has a yeah, problem but
3: the, the coach does he's got rage tell athletes when i'm telling them this don't tell the coach he's got a problem in that moment probably not a good strategic idea because he's not <laughs> he does that have any blood in his frontal lobe so And just that understanding, um, you you look at people that are upset with compassion, but that's what's going on in our world. You've got social media where people are getting more and more polarized. You've got algorithms that if you're a Democrat, you're going to see all of the articles that support what you already believe. If you're a Republican, you're going to see all the articles that support what you already believe. And nobody's looking at the other person's point of view. And confirmation bias is getting bigger and bigger. I see what I want to see, and I don't want to see what I don't want to see.
0: So, so Bob, I'm sure some of our listeners are are thinking right now: How could Bob, of all people, struggle with depression? Um, like I struggle with depression, they might be thinking. But you know, I haven't had the success that Bob has had. How could someone with that much success, who's spoken to ex presidents, to he's he's spoken alongside some of the greatest speakers of our time? You're an author, you've had so much success, but yet you talk openly here about feeling the darkness of depression. That was the worst hell you ever went through. What do you think ultimately caused your depression?
3: Well, it's back to the teddy bear. I thought that if I got enough success out there, that if I got my dream home, which I got, that if I had uh, got married and had children, that I had tons of money in the bank, and got on the biggest stages of North America, I'd be happy. Well, I was looking in the wrong direction. But the, the depression was set up when I was three years old. Okay. At three years old, my mother left me at someone's home while she went to get a gallbladder operation. And nothing bad happened except that I'm three years old and I see my mother abandoning me. I don't know if she's ever going to come back. And in that moment, I felt rage and shame. This is how my psychiatrist said it. I saw shame and rage that three-year-old did. And I had to feel that in his office. And that was sobbing for 30 minutes. And he said, we're on our way now. Now you'll start growing up. Because what would happen is I could function great. But when I got upset, I went back to being a little three-year-old.
2: Hmm.
3: So I don't know. There's yeah. my, Do you ever see politicians who, they function really well, but uh, as soon as it doesn't go their way, they uh, act like a little kid and do really stupid things. I don't know if you've ever seen that.
0: Uh, no, no, not at all.
3: <laughs> not naming any names. No, no.
1: <laughs> so right. do you think it's possible? I mean, you're in a place now where where you've got your piece. And at the same time, perhaps you wouldn't have gotten here. You wouldn't have been able to afford spending $40,000 on all of these psychotherapist to finally find your answer so like money had to come into play there do you think it's possible to reach some kind of outwardly goals of having x in the bank while still maintaining that peace on the inside are those do those things fit together at all or are they just completely different ends of the spectrum are are they
3: non-negotiable well, remind me about goals if I go off on a little tangent here. Okay. But uh, some of the happiest people in the world, I have a friend who just got back from Afghanistan, and he's also been to third world countries, and he said, there's a lot of happy people out there, and they don't have everything. Why is it that we who have everything are upset that we didn't get french fries with our, our shake? Mm-hmm. Uh, so happiness is not tied into money. No. Once again, there's our teddy bear again, we're looking for it outside. So I wanna talk about goals for a second. Did you guys ever hear uh, that story about the Yale University study that was done? And it's in Tony Robbins' book, Brian Tracy's book, Zig Ziglar's book, and I used to say this all the time, how important goals are, and here's how the story goes. In 1951, Yale did a study. They found that 5% of their graduating seniors wrote down and reviewed their goals on a daily basis And they tracked the entire class through a lifetime of 20 years. And after 20 years, that 5% outperformed, outmade, outdid the other 95% combined. Great story, isn't it, about Mm. goals? Mm -hmm. They went to Tony Robbins and said, where did you get the story from? I got it from Brian Tracy. Brian Tracy, where'd you get it from? Zig Ziglar. Zig Ziglar, where'd you get it from? Well, he had passed away, but his kid said, well, he read a lot of books. They went to Yale. We're sick of this. That story was made up. It never happened. So then I started looking at the importance of goals. And the guy from Shark Tank, I remember him saying, I invest in women, not men, because men set these big, hairy, audacious goals and everybody's upset in the company because it's ridiculous, whereas women set small, achievable goals and celebrate them on a regular basis. So now I'm going to take you one more step with goals. I just got through reading this. When you set a goal and you achieve it, your brain looks the same as if you had just got a hit of cocaine. Hmm. He said goals are a variable reward. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. A processing addiction. There we go. I'm sorry. It is a processing addiction. And some people are addicted to goal setting. But what happens? How long are you really happy after you finally get that Audi? Oh, got to go to Mercedes. Yeah. Oh, got to get a bigger house. Oh. I mean, the, the, the thrill is gone very quickly, right? So he said, this is a better way to live life, to have a purpose. So if you had a company that has a purpose and you have like-minded people all having a purpose, they will get there early. They will stay late because they believe in that purpose that is so important. You, ha- you go to a company where we got to get these goals. We got to get these higher goals. We've got, that's not a real fun place to be. And it's full of stress.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, Bob, you were once described as a mosquito on cocaine. Why don't you speak to that?
3: Actually, right now, I'm, I feel like I'm talking that way. <laughs> because, but here's the reason. Um, well, I, I was with you guys in person, and was I talking with this much passion, or was I kind of just very quiet and calmer?
1: I, I think you were a little calmer.
3: So if I'm talking one-on-one with somebody, there's, it, there's this calmness. So my son said this, Dad, our whole lives, you were like a mosquito on cocaine. You were go, go, go. You were driven. You were intense. When you walked in the house, it was like walking on eggshells around you. It wasn't fun to be around you. Dad, I like, in fact, is it weird that I I like being with my dad? You (laughs) just sat still and talked to me for over an hour looking right at me with this calmness. He goes, Dad, are you on drugs? If you are, this is a really good one. (laughs) But I also know how to keep people's attention. So that's why when I step onto the stage or like we're we're doing the show, to keep your attention, I speed up the, uh, I, I know how to do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, that's what's going on.
1: What well, I'm curious, a, a lot of, um, a lot of the work that you did early on to really start to, to get the reputation you did was around building memory and helping people achieve better memory. And by memory, they, they could uh, get better test scores and, you know, get the, achievements that they could through that now you're away from that you you don't really bring it up in in the work that you do but I'm curious why you first went to that memory place and then again why you stepped away and stepped out of that into the work that you do now
3: actually I didn't step away from it it I've included it in fact um, when I spoke with Tony Robbins I didn't I start with the bonnet giraffe the memory stuff Um. Uh... I don't remember. Or, the this t- is ironic,
0: remember, but I, I don't how, remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: Or how to remember people's names? Yes, yeah, you did that, that, that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so it was. Just, it's still memory. So my my new messaging that's on my website, Enlighten Up, uh, less stress to success through memory, mindfulness, and human connection.
2: Okay. The so- memory
3: part that's important still is you know remembering a person's name and three or four things about them that builds human connection. Which is an important facet in life and in business and the way we were built. Mm-hmm. Um, but let, let memory was something that uh, I could get audiences together that were interested. And it's interesting as my life has gone on. Well, I went through what a seven year um, sojourn from panic to peace. And I come out on the other side and I find out it's the biggest. Um, problem at, at every campus and, and school. I don't know if you remember it at the Tony Robinson. I said, how many of you personally know somebody dealing with uh, panic, depression or anxiety? Mm-hmm. Almost every hand goes up. Yeah, for sure. And 25% of them are sitting right in the room. Mm-hmm. So I had to go through it myself so that I could then speak about it. Well, it's just kind of the way it all turned out.
0: And this is a good time for you to maybe share about that, Bob. I know it was 2011 was, was sort of the big year when I, I believe you had your first panic attack um, while on stage, um, or perhaps you had just given a talk and, and you went be- behind the curtain, so to speak, and felt, felt this strange feeling coming over. Um, maybe you could speak to that situation and, and how, what got you there and, and, and what, w- what things look like from there.
3: What actually happened was I had an event. It wasn't the speaking. I was When I walk on stage, I feel like I'm at home Mm -hmm. Um, almost like a, you know, I was, I kicked in front of thousands. I cheerleaded in front of thousands. Arenas of people do not scare me whatsoever. In fact, the more, the merrier. I enjoyed it. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: What I had an event happen 2011, that triggered the panic attacks that I'd never had before and they wouldn't go away. It was one panic attack after another, after another. And then sometimes it would just go to massive anxiety. And panic, uh, it feels like, well, what happens is it's fight or flight or freeze. Mm -hmm. All the blood leaves your core, so you feel like you got a giant knot in your stomach. It's hard to breathe. Sometimes you feel like you're having a heart attack. My throat was shutting down, like it was closing off and I could hardly breathe or swallow. The blood leaves your frontal lobe, so you feel like you're in a fog. It's hard to think. And that wouldn't go away. So when I was on stage, actually what happened I didn't want to get off the stage because on that stage or raising baby birds or playing golf, it went away for some reason. Hmm. But when I wasn't in those three activities, the panic just crippled me. Hmm. And it was because of the psychological trauma from my childhood.
0: Hmm. So when you were busy, then it went away.
3: I just remember the worst panic attack I had. I drove 40 miles as fast as I could to the golf course that I belonged to. And it took me 45 minutes of hitting balls before it finally started to subside. Now what I've learned is when you have a panic attack, the chemicals have already been released. You know, the neurotransmitters to, you know, increase your heart rate and all this stuff. So to remember that after every storm, it gets calm. So all I had to do, if I would have known it back then, was wait 10 or 12 minutes and it would have subsided and gone away. But what did I do? I kept fighting it. I kept worrying about, oh, my gosh, is this ever going to end? And I just perpetuated it.
1: Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned technology and and basically looking at screens all the time and our, our overstimulation from technology as being uh, a major factor in creating this culture of anxiety. In terms of uh-huh. in terms of how people might move through that i mean putting it out to the masses saying everyone turn off your phone turn off your tv turn off your computer well that's probably not going to get a great response it might be it's it's uh yeah it's part of our reality now but how how might the process look of having a more healthy relationship with technology
3: i just did a 10 minute radio show about all this and the first question he asked was Um, How did you become aware of this? The second question was, um, how does it physically, uh, psychologically, uh, intellectually uh, impact us? And what's it doing to our relationships? Then was, how do you know you're addicted? And then finally, how do you get unaddicted? But one of the important facets, there was a tech show I was talking about. I said, guys, technology is here. But are we using the tool or is the tool using you? Mm -hmm. If you can't get away from it, if you can't stop, you have what's called an addiction. In fact, um, the worst thing you can do for your kids is get them addicted to the electronics because their brains, uh, it, it damages their brains four different ways. We've got a whole generation of kids on Adderall because they can't concentrate. Why can't they concentrate? Because they're all at ADHD. Why are they? Because the blue light coming off of those screens shrinks their frontal lobe and that's what a brain on AD- that's ADHD looks like.
2: Hmm.
3: So um, the first thing is what's an addiction? Uh, An addiction is the repeated involvement with a substance or activity, despite the substantial uh, harm that it causes, because that involvement continues to be pleasurable. So then you'd ask the question, well, I I had a radio, I think it was on one of the Fox News uh, radio stations says, so what's the big deal? I said, "Uh, do you want want to walk through why it's a big deal?
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
3: Okay, so physically, how does it impact us? Every time you get an alert on your phone, you, phone you get hit with cortisol, which is a stress hormone. Every time you're playing a video game and you die, you get hit with adrenaline and cortisol, a stress hormone. So you're all wound up inside. You've got to look at that phone. I've got to check it out, otherwise I feel uncomfortable. That's why people look at them when they're driving 70, 80 miles an hour down the freeway. <laughs> I have to look at it. That hmm. could so physically, you're all wound up inside. Uh, a professor from the university of texas said if you get off electronics for three days you will just feel better because you're not all wound up inside i had a brother-in-law who was having uh, stomach problems headaches and his eyes were drying up and his doctor said i'm going to save you three thousand dollars in tests go get blue light filter glasses and you'll start feeling better wow i an optometrist i just met said she's been wearing them for four years, built into her prescription glasses, and she begs every kid that comes through to please get them. So if you're looking at your smartphone, your TV, if you're going to look at it, put on blue light filter glasses or get a protective cover. Um, First Security Credit Union, I spoke to their group. They said, we already knew this. No one in our company is allowed to look at a computer screen unless they got those glasses on. So physically, that's how it can damage you, psychologically it uh accelerates people into depression uh kids are looking you're always comparing yourself to someone else my podcast didn't get as many as that podcast that doesn't make you feel good Mm -hmm. i didn't get enough likes that doesn't make you feel good that guy's bod looks way better than mine and that's why there's a direct link between depression and the amount of time on facebook or instagram um we have by the way we have 15th century brains with 21st century technology Our brain simply can't handle all of the cortisol hitting it and then all the dopamine. Dopamine, oh yeah, every time you see something you like, you you get a hit of dopamine. Example, they said the greatest addictive tool they ever created for Facebook and Instagram is the scroll down. Why? Because it's a variable reward, like a slot machine. I didn't win, I didn't win, ah, I won. And you never know when you're gonna win. What happens when you're scrolling down? Nothing, nothing, nothing. Hey, look at the kitty. Nothing, hmm. nothing, nothing, nothing. Hey, this is cool. That's dopamine. Me. I mean, the guys who developed it are the whistleblowers telling us about that now. So intellectually, U- uh, University of Utah and Kansas did a study, uh, and they uh, tested a bunch of students on problem-solving and creativity, took them into the high Uinta Mountains for a week and then tested them again. Their creativity and problem-solving increased by 50%. Hmm. There's a school – Before they let the kids take a test, they have them go outside and play in nature, and they found that the kids do better than if their brains are all scrambled from all the other things that are going on. And then finally, relationships. I have a really good friend who said, I may be getting divorced. My wife has a new boyfriend. It's the smartphone. It's ridiculous. (laughs) She ignores me and the kids. Um, there There was one other speaker I know who said, I woke up to this when my little girl walked up and said... Daddy, do you love your smartphone more than me?
1: Mm-hmm. Wow.
3: When I was speaking to um, these kids up in Canada, outside of Toronto, mm-hmm. there was 406 graders. And I said, kids, how many of you feel like your dad or mom are ignoring you all the time because uh, they're always looking at their smartphone? Almost every one of the kids' hands went up. So we have a generation of abandonment. So Tiger Woods said when he was a kid, a little kid, Every time he asked his dad a question, his dad stopped everything, got down on one knee, looked him in the eyes, and talked to him, looking him in the eye. So I brought one of the kids on stage. I said, hey, pretend I'm your dad and ask me a question. And I got my smartphone in my hand. So he asked me, hey, dad, can I tell you what happened today? Just wait a second. And I looked back at my phone. But dad, shh. okay, well, what? anyway, I said, how do you feel? And he goes, I actually feel kind of mad, and I don't like this. I said, okay, walk up on stage again and ask me a question. He walks up on stage. Hey, Dad. I go, wait a second. I put the phone down. I turn around. I get down at his eye level, and I look him in the eye, and I said, what's up? I said, how do you feel now? He goes, I like this. I said, you know why? The most important person on the planet is the one who's right in front of you.
0: Well, Bob, I remember you saying that you struggled for years to look people in the eye. Why do you think that was?
3: Because... This is what I'm guessing because I had too much pain behind my eyes. And there's two examples of that. With a former NFL football player, I was doing looking into each other's eyes. And if, if your listeners are listening, go look, go look it up, how to connect with anyone, look into each other's eyes for four minutes. Feels really uncomfortable when two guys are doing that. I was doing it with a former NFL football player and he started tearing up. He goes, I can't do this. I have too much pain behind my eyes. Hmm. So that's what he said to me a gal that i knew i was looking into her eyes and she burst into tears and says i don't let anyone in so it could be that it's a wall that we don't trust hmm. so but once again i'm not a psychiatrist so i don't i don't know if exactly that's the case but um that could be the case
0: so we can hide behind the screens a lot easier
3: oh yeah well why is bullying so bad oh did you know 58 percent of adults have been bullied in the last year on online
2: yeah, let not alone surprising. the kids
3: but these kids, if you can't see that I just hurt you and that I'm destroying you, like if I was at the, the the playground and I said something to you and I saw you burst into tears, I might be a little bit reticent about doing that again. But I, if I could you know, start bullying you anonymously, electronically, I don't see the damage I'm causing.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we all crave that human connection. And, and unless we're a sociopath, one another's feelings does have importance on- to us but in in our culture we when we're looking for a connection or we're all feeling like we're lacking connection and then the only avenues that we feel safe to go on to try to find that connection are social media or online and then we still feel like we haven't gotten our our fill of connection and then the cycle just continues um i want to go ahead
3: i just want to tell you the book (laughs) i just picked up which. know because people ask me how did i finally calm down and clear my mind i said i think it's connection i got connected to others and connected to myself last year it's a new york times bestseller johan Hari. the book is called lost connections Mm -hmm. and he said these are the nine causes of depression and anxiety disconnected from meaningful work disconnection from people disconnected from values disconnected from our childhood trauma Disconnected from status and respect and disconnection from the natural world. And he says how to get reconnected. Get reconnected to people, to meaningful work, to meaningful values, uh, to overcoming and acknowledging your childhood trauma. He wrote a book about what I went through.
0: Yeah, because, you know, they, they say that depression is the ultimate disconnection, disconnection from yourself and from your surroundings. And so um, it makes sense. And you swirl hmm
3: Yeah, if you're if you're anxious or depressed, what do you do? You don't want to be around people and you're just making it worse. Yeah,
1: for sure What would you say okay. go ahead Bob
3: No, that's it. Okay, <laughs> your turn <laughs> um, I'm gonna listen now
1: <laughs> Yeah, so well, that's another question. So you get to talk soon, but um, what, what would you say like so if you're writing a uh, prescription if, if you're a doctor to to for people to reconnect and Maybe people are listening to this and thinking, "This is me." Like I, I feel like I'm. There's something wrong, but I don't know what it is. I feel ang- anxious. I feel like yeah, as soon as my phone lights up, I gotta look at it. What do you? What would you say is the first step for people? It, you know, you you just listed off nine different things to connect with, but maybe that's overwhelming. And maybe they're like, "Well, I only have so much time in the day. I'm already so busy because they've got that addiction too." What, where would you recommend that people start?
3: Well I think everybody's got to start from a different place and it's important to know that each person has the solution to their own problems. so in the quiet and you know you, have you ever had a, a flash of insight while you're taking the shower or uh, lifting weights or you know riding a bike everybody has their own in that quietness we find the answer so the journey would be toward seeing if you could, Look for the answers in yourself. You know, how, like advice. If we ask enough people, we'll find somebody who will agree with what we already decided to do, right?
0: Yeah, for sure.
3: However, what does a doctor normally do? If, if Like my psychiatrist. When I sat there, the first thing he wanted to know things like, you know, let's, let's look at uh, how much sleep are you getting. Um, are you drinking a lot of caffeine? Um, now it's electronics. Are you on your electronics a lot? I mean, there's some physical things that you could just change that would start calming you down all by itself. Um, it, do, you, do you have a lot of anger and a lot of sadness all the time? Well then, maybe you need to find somebody who's a professional who help, can help you visit your childhood and and feel those feelings and get them out of you. And then the, you know, the part that was in the middle, I, I think you remember this, I learned all about positivity and gratitude and happiness and affirmations, and I found out that All of those may have helped a little bit, but they weren't the answer. The answer was each day, if you've got children, look in their eyes and talk to them. If you're married, look into your wife's eyes, sit across from her and look into each other's eyes and have a conversation. And we talked about listening, remember that? Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm.
3: Yeah, so then I would ask, because you can listen to this over, when somebody's talking, have you ever noticed that you're already thinking about what you're going to say next? No, human no. Connection. <laughs> Yeah. yeah well, human sure. connection is broken if you're holding a thought in your head. So my son, I learned this from him when he told me something he'd never told me before and he's 30 years old. He said, Tom, why did you ever tell me that before? Dad, you're just accepting and you don't judge. He goes, when I was a kid, the way you judged other people for not being spiritual enough or successful enough, I didn't feel safe to tell you anything. Hmm. So what if we could listen to someone with nothing on our mind just to be there for another human being? You guys out there, women don't want you to fix their problems. They just want you to listen and be there. But we both could learn a lot from this. So when someone's talking, I try to have nothing on my mind, just be clear, wait till they're done talking, let, pause for three or four seconds because they may have more to say. And in that pause, the next new thought emerges.
1: Now- when you talk about acceptance, um, I it brings my mind to not, not when you were talking, but just now that you finished what you were saying, of course. Well um, done, Andrew. <laughs> but it it makes me think of self-acceptance. And I'm, I'm wondering if through your process of, of finding this clarity, if, if self-acceptance was a part of it, uh, accepting kind of your past self and, and who you are and, and who you have been. And, and if so, what was that like?
3: You know, it's really interesting how many people I've asked, do you love yourself? And they go, I hate myself. They say those words. And I go, well, with me, it depended on what was going on outside of me, whether I hated myself or loved myself. So if I was doing really good, I loved myself. If I was doing really bad. I hated myself. And I was putting my worth, my worth was based on performance. And I found out one day, oh, I'm of great worth either way. Or we beat ourselves up over something in the past. And then one day it occurred to me when somebody says, well, Bob, knowing what you know now, would you have done that then? I said, well, no. So how can you judge the 18-year-old with the mind of a 50-some-year-old? If you had known that when you were 18, you wouldn't have done it. So quit judging yourself and let it go. You did the best you could. And when I started realizing that, I went, oh, I'm doing the best I can with what I know at the time. Somebody goes, yeah. Well, I should have had more willpower. If you had more willpower, you would have done it. But you didn't have more willpower, so you didn't. So you did the best you could. So that was kind of the process for um, accepting myself and loving myself, either way. And you know, I I remember I showed you that um, it's a picture of a diamond. And in the middle, the diamond is perfect, happy, common, loving. Like that's who you are. Why can't we see that beautiful part of ourselves because of thought? There's a layer of thought of guilt, insecurity, shame, addiction, self-loathing, and selfishness. And they're all just thoughts. And you know, another part that we learn about is irrational thoughts aren't real, but we believe them. And we got another layer layer. We're trying to please other people or conform or status symbols or flattery. That, those are the kinds of things we can't see who we are. Once again, you're 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 made up of beauty inside and peace and calm, but you can't feel it because your mind is making too much noise.
0: So so Bob, one of the things we talk about on obstacle course is we never arrive. That we're, we're always the struggle is real every day. And in some ways, we have to begin anew every day. So you've come so far. You're at a place where you've gone from panic to peace. You're at a you're at a place where the things that used to bother you and throw you, um, you can just it's like water off a duck's back. What does it look like now when you are compromised, or are you ever compromised?
3: Oh, um, uh, what was it? something just recently? Okay, so uh, somebody didn't pay supposed to pay me.
0: Someone didn't pay and you,
3: and I went. That's right. So, and every time about like ten thousand dollars plus, right? Mm-hmm. So you know what struggle is? Arguing with what is. Yeah, he should pay me. He should. What's the thought that kicks you out of heaven? My life is great. I'm sitting here. I'm in a beautiful room. It's a beautiful day. It's. I'm breathing. I'm not in pain. Life's wonderful. The only way, if I'm, it's being in the moment. Mm-hmm. The only way I could get out of heaven right now is a thought. That idiot should have paid me. Well, there's the thought that kicked me out of heaven. Right. Yeah. So, so it's not what struggle is arguing with what is, and if you're arguing with what is, it comes in the form of a thought. You're in the future or the past instead of being in the present.
1: You talked about the, the difference between goals and purpose or or how purpose can be aligned with, with goals and, and how much more effective that can be. Um, what would you say your purpose is at this time in your life?
3: Uh, what's really interesting, when I just read that about a month ago, I stopped and go, "Huh, oh, what's my purpose? And this is what I came up with. My purpose is to learn something new and share it with others.
0: Hmm. That's great.
3: And so each day, I wake up and go, okay, whose life can I change today? And I keep my eyes open all day. And what was it, two days ago, I flew back from Atlanta. There was a 10-year-old and an eight-year-old sitting next to me. They learned memory techniques. They learned about tech addiction. They learned about being nice to others. And their dad was run, roll back and heard some of it. And he said, thank you so much for having that talk with my girls. Can you talk to my wife now about the tech addiction?
1: I was wondering about that. I, I, I was going to ask if uh, if you're focusing on, on youths now because you think that uh, grown-ups are too far gone.
3: <laughs> uh, I go through any door that opens, any door. I am speak- I had a call just a few days ago. A keynote speaker uh, had a- is going into emergency surgery, and they needed someone, and they were looking for someone real fast. And I said, sure, I'll come do it. Uh, and it came out of nowhere. I've spoken to the American. You ready for this, you guys? Yeah. I I speak in old folks homes, I speak in prisons, I speak in addiction recovery centers, I've spoken to actuaries, accountants, um most of the uh, uh high executives and most of the Fortune 500 companies, middle schools, high schools, um I don't do kindergarten anymore, you got to bring a duck. <laughs> but any of those any of those any of those those groups i don't know why but i can hold their attention and there's something i mean human connection is for everyone having a better memories for everyone being nice to and kind and lifting those around us is for everyone so lifting the spirits of others you know you, you can't change the whole world but you can change the one who's in front of you or help the one in front of you if they want to be helped oh you want to hear a story about that
0: yeah definitely
3: so my great teacher said bob you're becoming more of a, a A practitioner, like you can help others, but you have a habit of shoving it down their throat, whether they like it or not. Like when I learned memory, every person I met here, give me 15 things to remember. Here's how you memorize it. You know, I just, whether they liked it or not, I was going to teach them. So he, he used a little metaphor of a a story with his kids. He goes, I've got a six year old, eight year old and 10 year old. I'm folding the laundry in my bed. What do they want to do? I go, they want to help you fold the laundry. He goes, right. And so what do they do? I go, they create a bigger mess. He goes, right. (laughs) And how do they feel? I go, they feel happy. He goes, like many practitioners out there, all they do is make a big mess, but they feel good about it. He says, Bob, always wait for the question. You can open up the door and say, hey, I've got some ideas about how you might uh, feel better. And if they're, they're open to it, great. If they're not, just don't push it. Wait for the question.
0: Um, Bob, a couple things. We just recorded an episode uh, that came out today, actually, and the lady that we recorded used the term an openist. And she talked about how she's an openist in her life now. And it just has reminded me of, of a common theme that has come up many times, not resisting what is, but being open to the possibilities of something something better. So I wanted to pass that along. Um, secondly, you tell a beautiful story of, of a young girl who came to your house about 12 years ago when you had got the first diagnosis of, of your um, of, of a cancer and and she she gave you a gift and, and I wondered if you might want to share that story with our listeners
3: okay well my doctor called me one day and he said that the little tumor he took out of my chest had spread from somewhere else in my body it was what was called a metastatic which means it has spread adenocarcinoma, which is incurable, nobody has ever survived, he says, Bob, you got about a year to live. And then I you know, I just go, well, what would you do if you found out you had a year to live? I had already learned about gratitude, so I picked up my video camera and started filming, it was April, it was snowing, kids, I just found out I got a year to live and I want you to know I'm grateful for every day of life I have with you. And then I got practical, I called the dentist and canceled my dentist appointment because I thought, I'm not going there anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And then my daughter at the time was only 14 years old, and she's very practical. She sat me down. Dad, I heard the news. Can I ask you a question? I said, sure. Dad, do you have life insurance? (laughs) I said, well, yeah. Why? Is there any chance we could get some money for some clothes? I mean, not today, but you know. Well, for 28 days, I lived with the news it was all over. 28 days later, the Huntsman Cancer Center calls me and said they made a mistake. It's a neuroma, which is benign. You're okay. Well, I was grateful. And then I got practical. I called the dentist and got my dentist appointment back. And then I took my daughter shopping for clothes because I didn't want her to be disappointed. I didn't die.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
3: but in the midst of the 28 days, because I tell kids in schools, you've got great power to lift others. And so some of them will say, I'm just a teenager. What difference could I make? There was a 13-year-old in my neighborhood going through chemotherapy for a brain tumor. She didn't have a hair on her body. She showed up at my door in that 28 days and she said the words that literally changed my life when she said, call me anytime, day or night. I know what you're going through and I think I can help. And from that day forward, I asked myself the question, whose life can I change today? And if I help one person, I didn't just help one person. How many did I help? Guys, did you hear the the second half of that story? What happened last year with that young lady who survived?
1: I haven't heard it now.
3: Uh, I was speaking at Utah Valley University last year and she was on the front row and I said, Jocelyn, you're here. She goes, I heard you were speaking. I got to this part in my speech because I used that as a in my keynote. I said, Jocelyn, over one million people's lives have been touched because you showed up at my door with a plate of cookies. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as a small act of kindness. Each act creates a ripple with no logical end.
2: Wow, oh, yeah.
0: That's and,
1: a great story. And such a powerful lesson. I mean, you <laughs> You hear often like your your actions, however small, they can they can really shape people's lives. But um, that's a that's a true true example of just one little girl. She wasn't trying to shape a million. She was just trying to bring a little bit of light to someone's life who who was suffering. So um, yeah, that that touches me, and and I'm sure will will touch people out there who you, you have no idea what kind of impact you can make. Um, and yeah, maybe it'll be multiplied by a million. It's pretty amazing.
3: You know, the other thing you were talking about being open. Yes. What is it? What is a closed mind? You can't teach a closed mind anything. Um, in fact, I, I heard that a belief is simply an opinion. You refuse to reconsider.
0: Oh, wow. Well, yeah, um, I like so, that.
3: So I, so I like to always question. It's like, have you ever said, called yourself an idiot, you guys? Oh,
0: yeah, for yeah. sure.
3: Who, who, were you born with the words, I'm an idiot?
0: No. Hopefully so not. So then you
3: question, am I really? <laughs> yeah, you're not. Am I really an idiot? You I know heard... a big suggestion I would have for everyone is uh, get the book, The Untethered Soul by Michael Singer or listen to his, um, he's got a podcast called Overcoming, no, uh, Mindfulness 2016.
2: Hmm. Michael
3: Singer, Mindfulness 2016. And this is basically it. And guys, I think we talked about this. You know that little talking you got going on in your head?
2: Mm -hmm.
3: you know the talking that's arguing with the talking i should get a pizza no i'm trying to lose weight no let's go get a pizza (laughs) it's it's that he calls it the roommate in our head that won't shut up i mean if that person really existed outside of us we'd get rid of him right he's driving us nuts so the question is asked you know which one is it which one is you and i have people go well both of them one of them neither of them so to get there i say can you hear your spouse's voice in your head or your mom or dad or you know a friend and usually people say yes and i go are you that person well no can you hear music playing in your head sometimes whether you like it or not and they go yeah are you the music no um i like this one are you hearing the talking in your head in english or if it's in canada maybe french or is it in vietnamese they usually hear it in their own language right Mm -hmm. So what you are hearing are tape recordings, like somebody called you an idiot, so it plays in your head. And if you're under an fMRI, you would see uh, a little synaptic flash. That's a neural pathway. When you attach an emotion to a thought, it creates a neural pathway. And the more times you run that little tape like, oh, she'll never see me again. Sadness. She'll never see me again. Sadness. I'm building a neural pathway, and it's making me feel sad all the time. So the thing to do is to notice thoughts, and that's the first step to mindfulness. You observe the thoughts because who you really are is the observer. You're neither one of those tape recordings. And then eventually you can quiet down and see the new thought or the inspired thought come up from underneath, which is always there.
1: What would you say, Bob, to people who are listening and are thinking, wow, that Bob, he he really, he's come a long way. He's a transformed person. He... He's got a lot of goodness in him, but you know, I'm the way I am, and I, I don't think I can do the same thing that Bob did. I, this is just me. This is my habits, and, and this is my neuroses, and that's
3: it. Be who you are 100%. I, you know, In the book by Eckhart Tolle, he goes, if you feel lazy, go be lazy. Don't be here wishing you were there. Go, go lay down. Be lazy instead of going, I should be doing all these other things. And you'll get unlazy really quick, and then you'll go do something else. Um, there's hope. And I, each person has a, a self-correcting system within them, psychologically, physically. Uh, but we got to get out of its way. And so the book um, Michael, uh, Michael Neal, The Inside Out Revolution, talks about that. And don't compare you to who I am. You're doing perfectly what, who you are right now. It's when we start beating ourselves up with thoughts that we, you know, then we get into, um, you know, what they. I just heard somebody explain it this way. Um, what we could do is believe thoughts are real and our life is miserable and you should do this, you should do that, and all that kind of stuff goes on in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Then we get to this place where we can create. We can make choices and create things. But there's a place beyond that, and it's called flow. And that's where the quietness happens, right, when you're in the flow. hmm So imagine you're in a a riverbed and there's no water in it and you've got this heavy boat and you're going, I want to get down there where that guy is. Well, you can pick up the boat and pull it and struggle and kill yourself trying to get there. Or why don't you just get in the boat, sip on a lemonade and wait for the water to come and then just float down to it. Mm -hmm. Get in with the flow.
1: So how do you get that flow?
3: It's a quiet mind. It's a quiet mind and following that inspired thought. And if the steps for me were, and I don't know what everybody else's journey is, I had to handle my repressed childhood problems. I had to rewire my brain into you know, a more positive outlook. I had to get connected with myself through reflection and quit blaming what's going on outside of me for what's going on inside of me. And then finally, for me, it was um, uh, eliminating irrational thoughts so, like at the end of my TED talk, what I say, I called my friend and I said, "Dude, what'd you do?" And he said, well, "What?" I go, all the talking in my head went away. I had no idea that was possible. And it's, it's like Zen. I mean, there's people are going, that's Zen-like." I go, I don't know anything about Zen. All I know is my brain is quiet. Mm-hmm. That was my journey, and that's how it worked for me. But once again, the answer is within each person. Um, can I read you a poem this this girl wrote me?
0: Yeah, we've never had a poem on the podcast, so please do.
3: Here's, here's the back story to it real quick. I was going to this networking event, and there was this young lady, 17 years old, and she was started her own business, and she was very dejected. And the guy who was running the, running the event said, why? My parents just keep putting up roadblocks for me. My mom says, you need to go get a job. So instead of working for someone else, I like cleaning homes, and I found some people with a lot of money who would let me clean their homes for $25 an hour, which is probably a steal. But my mother said, you're not worth $25 an hour, and she started making me pay for – she wouldn't let me use the car. She started making me pay for my own cleaning supplies. And she goes, I don't know what to do. And they all looked at me and says, talk to Bob afterwards. And this is the first time I visited. I was just there visiting one of my friends. So I had a talk with her, and let me just read what she wrote about a month later. She said, I went to this meeting with a heavy heart, emotionally exhausted, torn and worn. I did not have the desire to carry on. Before the meeting began, I was introduced to entrepreneurs alike and then to Bob, whom I quickly overlooked. (laughs) It wasn't until we began talking that he told me that he had a solution to my problems. I smiled as if in sympathy for him and said, oh, really? He looked me dead in the eye and said, yes, so confident it shook the mountains. He compared it to a scary movie where the fear builds up as the plot thickens, but then come to realize that it's not real. Bob taught me that when I play the recordings of the future and the past, that it causes these fears, and he showed me that they're not real. I am happier when I'm able to shut off the movies of the future and the past to truly be in the moment. Bob looked me in the eye once again with that humble confidence and told me that I am the solution to my problems.
2: Hmm.
3: And then she went and figured it out.
1: How did it make you feel to have that impact?
3: Um, this is why I get up out of bed every day and I go look for that one person.
1: I was going
0: to ask you, Bob, you do a lot of things. You speak to stadiums of thousands of people. You've written books. Um, you go to schools all the time and you speak to Canadian podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> what? What is your What is your favorite thing to do? No pressure. No. What's your favorite thing to do in terms of what gives you the most joy? Speaking to the masses or speaking to the individuals?
3: Um, It used to be speaking to the masses for the reason of I needed the acceptance of others to feel good about myself. When Mm -hmm. I finally healed that part of me, something changed. I used to speak and then book out of there because I got my hit. You know, all right, they clap. Now I hang out and I talk to people till the last person leaves. I remember standing on stage one day, going, "Oh my gosh, I love people. Where did that come from?" Yeah. So, um, I think the answer is, it, it could be anytime I see anyone where that little light turns on, because I start pointing. I go, "It's right there. It's right there." It's it's like uh, math. Have you ever been trying to explain math and you go, "I don't get it. I don't get it," and then oh, I get it. So it's that seeing that flash know. of inspiration that I get it that seems to uh, connect with me the most.
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: Yeah. Well, Bob, I uh, I feel like I get it more after this conversation and um, I appreciate you making the time and, and and being able to connect with us once again here on on, uh, on this stage.
0: Well, and honestly, Bob, um, when Andrew said he had emailed one of the speakers, I was like, okay, that's a waste of an email. <laughs> so when you got back to us and then we had lunch and then we, we gave our hugs and, and s- said goodbye, maybe we'll see you again one day, I, I looked at Andrew and I said, that's got to be the most authentic guy I've ever met. Um, you, you You gave such a strong first impression. I would have never thought that somebody who's you know, speaks to the masses and the kind of success you've had would come and have lunch with a couple of West Coast Canadians, aspiring podcasters. And you did, and you made a real difference in our lives. And here we are 10 months later talking about it. So continue to continue to do what you do, Bob. Um, It's it's, it's so inspiring.
3: Well, thanks. And um, I want to kind of finish with a quote. The future is a mystery. The past is just history all that's important is right now that's why they call it a present
1: who who said that bob other than you no
3: clue i tried to i tried <laughs> to. i just misquoted it the person who is anonymous because they can't figure out who said it i always try to find out where it came from
1: <laughs> well
0: it doesn't matter who said it it's true that's great yeah well
3: so go be in the moment enjoy now
1: we will do we have enjoyed now and the the past and uh yeah, we will we will keep that mindset going forward and, and uh, stop getting all those negative diagnoses. You got to stick around for a while longer and, and keep making a difference.
0: Yeah.
3: Oh, okay. Well, I'll be in charge now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> cool. Yeah.
0: Thanks,
3: you guys. This is awesome. Yeah, keep thanks. Keep it
0: up. Thanks, Bob. Great to hear from you again. Yeah. And
1: thanks for bearing with it through our, our technical difficulties.
0: Yeah, we did this by phone, listeners. First time <laughs> ever. Hopefully it doesn't show. <laughs> Bye,
3: Bob. See ya.
1: Thanks, Bob. Well, that's the episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. We appreciate your time and attention. If we can make one request, please subscribe. How do you do that, John? They push subscribe. That's all you got to do.
0: We also got social media, guys. We got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Please like us and follow us there. We
1: also got a really fancy website obstaclecoursepodcast.com. That is the one. It's where you'll find our show notes and lots of other goodies. And if you have somebody who'd be great for the podcast, please let us know. Send us a message on any of those networks and we'll bring them on. Mm-hmm. For sure. We're always looking for good people. Thanks for listening. Keep pushing through those
2: obstacles.